So today, we're going to be looking at a Christmas passage, a passage on the incarnation, one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture on the incarnation of Christ. But it's not just on the fact of the incarnation, the narrative of the incarnation. It's on the theology of the incarnation and how that impacts us as the church today. So we're going to be looking at the incarnation, its significance, and its impact, its relevance to our lives today. So if you, open, if you want to open in your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. While you turn there, a little bit of background on this book, this letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles. So it's written by the Apostle Paul from his imprisonment in Rome. And it's written to this church in Philippi. Now you might think, based on the fact that Paul is writing this letter, from some pretty dire circumstances, he's writing this letter as he's imprisoned and has this idea of his imminent death hanging over his head, you might think that the tone of Philippians would be rather grave. But it's not. It's not, because you see, there's a lot that's going on here in this letter. Paul has a deep connection to the church in Philippi. This is a church that Paul planted. It's a church that that supports Paul in his ministry, and it's a church that is full of people who he has significant relationships with. Paul has a lot of love for the church in Philippi, and that comes out through his writing as we read this letter. The church in Philippi is also a, a healthy church. It's not a perfect church, certainly. There are some things we see, some, some possible um, sources of, of division and conflict and things like that in the church in Philippi, but the, the letter to the Philippian church is very different than Paul's letter to, say, the Galatian church or his letters to the, the Corinthian church. See, those letters are calling out false teaching. They're calling out heresy. They're calling out um, immorality in those churches. But the letter to the church in Philippi is not doing those things. The letter to the church in Philippi is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of encouragement. And so today, as we look to Philippians, specifically in Philippians chapter 2, what we're going to see is we're going to see one of those encouragements that Paul gives to this healthy, beloved church in the city of Philippi. We're going to see one of those encouragements. And what we'll see as we walk through this encouragement, this exhortation that Paul is giving by the power of God's spirit that he is giving to the church in Philippi, what we're going to see is that his instruction here breaks down into really three major pieces, three major, major movements in these verses, three components to his exhortation. He starts with the what of his exhortation. He moves to the how and then he lands on the why. Maybe another way to say that is that he starts with the command, he moves to the instructions, and then he finishes with the purpose. From command to instruction to purpose. So we'll be in Philippians chapter two. We're gonna be going, oh, hello. That's, hey, there we go. All right, sweet. 
Josh just came out of nowhere and he's like in my pocket. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> oh. All right, all right, I gotta get my composure. Okay. Um, so, Paul's instruction here, moving from command to instruction to purpose. That's what we're going to see. And we are going to go ahead and read the whole section that we're going to be talking about, and then we'll go through, we'll look at each of those three pieces separately. Now, I know in your bulletins it says Philippians 1 through 11. That's because I told Sarah that on Thursday, but it's Sunday. So we're doing Philippians 1 through 15, all right? So let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed so Now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we walk through this passage, your command to your church is clear. Your calling to not just the church in Philippi, but to us today, that that calling is clear. Father, help us to have a mind of humility like Christ that you may be glorified in our lives, in our speech, in our relationships. Be with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the three major pieces of Paul's instruction, what, how, why, command, instruction, purpose. Let's start with that first, that what. What is being commanded here? What is being commanded? What is he asking? What is he demanding? What is he encouraging the Philippian church to do? Well, that first point is this. It is a mandate of unity. A mandate of unity. Look at verses 1 and 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Paul's commandment to the church in Philippi, Paul's commandment to God's people here is that they live together in a deeply felt and a closely held unity. That they be united in full accord and in one mind with each other. But here's the thing about this unity that Paul is commanding of the church in Philippi. This unity is not something that is contrived. It's not something that they are to fashion out of whole cloth. It's not something that is to be made up out of nothing. This Unity that he's commanding them to to here is based on something that is real. This unity that the church is called to is an outward manifestation of inward realities of the gospel. This unity that Paul is calling the church in Philippi to, that God is calling his church in Philippi to, this unity is an outward manifestation of the inward realities of the gospel. Look at verse 1, this list of of rhetorical questions. These if-then statements. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy... And I say those are rhetorical because the answers are obvious, right? The answer to that if is clearly yes. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Of course there is. For God's people, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, he is their greatest encouragement. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, then be of the same mind. If there is any comfort from love, from the love that Christ has shown you, from the love that those of us in the body show each other, if there is any comfort found in that love, then be of the same love. If there's any encouragement in Christ, be of the same mind. If there's any comfort from love, be of the same love. If there's any participation in the Spirit... We who are a part of the church who put our faith and trust in Jesus, who follow him, who trust in him. The Bible tells us that the same spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that means that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you know Jesus, if you know Christ. Right, this is basic math. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? What's that called, Ken? I don't know. Transitive property. Thank you. That's right. I was testing him. It's a transitive property. Right? And so in, in, the, in the same way, our participation in the Spirit of God is a participation in one another. Because the same Spirit that lives in your brother and your sister, and Christ lives in you. So if there's any participation in the Spirit, then we are to be a full accord. If there's any affection and sympathy that we share as the body of Christ, as the family of God, 
And we are to be of one mind. Paul's call here, his call to this outward unity, is a call to living a reflection of the inward realities of the gospel. This outward unity is a call to an, a reflection of the inward realities of the gospel. It's also a call to live a life that is worthy of those realities. A call to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. We just went to math class with the transitive property, so now we're gonna go uh, to English. We're gonna go to your elementary English class, and we're gonna look at verse two. What's the first word of verse two? Well, depending on your translation, sorry, I said verse two, chapter two, verse one, there's a big two in here, it threw me off. Depending on your translation, that first word in verse one is maybe so, if you're in the ESV, if you're in the NASB or the LSB, I know some of you are, then that first word is therefore. But either way, that first word of verse one is a conjunction. It's a conjunction, and what does a conjunction do? What is the function of a conjunction? Some of you are singing, right? It's hooking up words and phrases and clauses. What that tells us is that verse one is not a standalone thought. It's connected to something that has come before. And if we want to know what this so is in reference to, what this therefore is in reference to, we have to jump back up in chapter 1 up to verse 27, the last command that Paul gave to the church in Philippi. And this is what he says there in verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. We are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. How? By standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel despite suffering, despite difficulty. Living a life that is worthy of the gospel is about unity. It's about being united in one mind and one spirit as the family of God, as the body of Christ, as his church. And this echoes a passage that Scott took us through a few months ago in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter four. I'll just read that to you. You can turn there if you'd like. Paul gives a very similar exhortation to the church in Ephesus. He says this, therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live a life that is reflective of the reality of who you've been made to be. Live a life, walk in the manner 
worthy of a calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, this unity that we're called to, this unity among believers, this is not an optional extra of the Christian life. This unity is not an extracurricular. This unity is not a stretch goal. This unity is not an additional thing that we add on to the Christian life. This unity is the Christian life. It is the outward manifestation of the inward reality of who we have been made to be in Jesus. But here's the problem. While that unity is fundamental to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, while that unity is the only logical outworking of the encouragement in Christ, the participation in the Spirit, the comfort in love, it's not always an easy thing to live out practically, is it? It's not something that, that we can take for granted. And in fact, even the fact that Paul includes it as a major point of, of his exhortation to both the church in Philippi and the church in Ephesus shows us that that unity, while it is fundamental, it is not to be taken for granted. It does not happen all on its own. Sometimes it's difficult. It's difficult to obtain. It's difficult to, to maintain. Yet we are to live in light of this unity that already exists. So the question then is how? How are we to actively seek that unity? If it's not a given, then how do we seek it? And I think that's where, where Paul goes next here. He gives us instruction on how to seek this unity among the body. And what he focuses on is our mindset, a mindset of humility, mindset of humility. Let's look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So what is the key to this unity? What is the key to the outward manifestation of this inward unity? The key is to walk through life with an attitude of humility. What is humility? What does that mean? What does that look like? Sometimes we have difficulty defining the word humility, or even here in verse three, as he says, to count others as more significant than yourselves. We have a misunderstanding of what that means. See, Paul is not calling us here to self-pity. 
He's not calling us to this attitude of everybody else is better than me, everybody else has, they all know what they're doing, they all have it. That's not humility. Self-pity, self-loathing, low self-esteem, that's not humility. And if you want proof of that, I would send you right down the street here to Kingsburg High School. Because if you spend any amount of time with teenagers, you're going to find out two fundamental facts that are true about just about every teenager. The first is that they struggle with low self-esteem. Being a teen is hard, right? Most of us, we didn't grow up in the the era of of social media. I had Facebook uh, in high school. Actually, I really had MySpace in high school. And there's the whole top eight thing, and that was a whole disaster. But... um, but teens today have, have, have social media in their pockets. They're constantly, constantly comparing themselves to others. And what do we see? We see depression spiking. We see self-esteem in, in the gutter because they're comparing themselves to their, their peers. Not just When I was a kid, we compared ourselves to celebrities. Now they're comparing themselves to their peers, but their peers are put through 75 filters. And they look nothing like that by the time they, they come to this comparison. And so what you see, if you spend time with teenagers, you see that they, they have low, a low view of themselves. They have low self-esteem down on themselves. They think everybody else has it together. Everybody else, no one else struggles with this thing that I struggle with. No one else has difficulty that I have. But then the other thing you find out about teenagers after spending some time with them is that while they have low self-esteem, the majority of them are also self-obsessed. And this might seem contradictory, right? They have such a low view of themselves but they also are obsessed with themselves. They take pictures of themselves. Why do you need that? You have a mirror. I don't, right, so so they they take these selfies, they're always talking about themselves, they're obsessed with their own identity, I am this thing, we have this, this whole thing now, I don't wanna get into the, the weeds on, on gender ideology and all that stuff, but, We've reached this world where I need more than two pronouns because I'm so special, I need something that is specifically mine and no one else's, right? That is self-obsession. That doesn't mean that that they love themselves, but it means that they're focused on themselves. And I know some of you in here are teenagers. I'm sorry I'm beating up on you. Maybe I'm talking about the other kids at school and not you. I don't know. But I'm just saying this to illustrate this point. You see, having a low view of ourself is not, is not humility. Thinking that everyone else is better than us, that's, that's not humility, and that's not what Paul is calling the church to here. When he says count others as more significant than yourselves, he's not giving a call to self-pity, he's giving a call to self-denial. He's not giving a call to self-hatred. He's giving a call to an others-focused mentality. C.S. Lewis defines humility in his book, Mere Christianity, in, in in a way that only Lewis can. He says that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about thinking that you're not good enough. And scripture tells us you're not, but that's not the point. Humility is about 
thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. So in humility, count others as more significant than yourself means in your humility, stop focusing on yourself, start focusing on others. He puts some meat on the bones of what this looks like in verse four. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now something that's fascinating here, if you go into the original language, you go into the Greek, there's a word in that verse that is added. A word in that verse that was not in the letter that Paul penned by the Spirit to the Philippians. A word that was not in the Greek. And it's a significant word in the meaning of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. The word that's added, the word that's not there in Greek is only. And see, they add it in the English because the also is there and the only counterbalances the also. But if we were to read this more literally, it would say something like this. It would say, let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. See, the call here that is being put on us, on the church, this call of humility that leads to unity, this is not a secure your own breathing mask before helping those next to you kind of call. This isn't a take care of yourself, and when you're fully taken care of, then move on and help out others. That's not what this call is. This is a radical call to an extreme others-centeredness. We live in a culture today, even a Christian culture today, that is obsessed with this idea of self-care. We love this idea of self-care. And to be clear, God understands that we have needs that need to be taken care of, right? He establishes the Sabbath because he knows that we as finite beings, we need to rest. But in many of our even Christian circles, we've taken that concept and we've taken it to an extreme that is completely unbiblical. Focusing on self-care, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our own health, our mental health. Our... But the call here the call of humility that leads to unity that is an outworking of the gospel reality in our lives, this call is to a radical others-centeredness. Not to self-care, but to others' care. A call to put the interests and the needs and the desires and the comfort and the safety and the security and the rights of others ahead of our own. That is a radical call. Most often in our lives, that radical call plays out in the mundane. It plays out in the mundane, everyday, day-to-day interactions with those around us. For me, other care often looks like this. I, I, have, a, um, I have a one-year-old son who uh, does not talk but has many opinions. 
And uh, so trying to figure out what those opinions are is, is a whole game of, I'd say charades, but it's not silent. Um, he's just not saying words. I also have a four-year-old son who will make his opinions known very clearly and very constantly. And, and I love my boys, but they're, they're, they're a handful, right? And so what humility looks like in my life I'm going to tell you, this isn't usually how it goes, but sometimes it does, is when I have a, a long day here at the church, maybe, maybe it's, it's a hard day, a difficult counseling situation, um, a, a hard meeting, something that it's draining, and I come home at the end of the day, and I want nothing more than to sink into the couch, mindlessly scroll on my phone, and tune out, Right? But invariably, that's when the one-year-old starts screaming about something. Or that's when Grant, my four-year-old, comes up to me and says, Daddy, can you push me on the swing? Now I have a choice to make. My son does not need to be pushed on the swing. He will be fine if no one pushes him. He will be fine if he goes and plays with one of the thousands of toys that he has on his own. He'll live. But also, I'll be fine if I get up and I do put in the effort and I play with my son for the next two and a half hours until bedtime. So I have this choice to make between his desires and mine, between his good and my own. And the world would tell me, it's okay, you need a break, you need to take a rest, you, you need to take care of yourself. But Paul is telling me God is telling me, his word is telling me to put others' interests before my own. Grant doesn't really need to swing, but I don't really need to scroll through Instagram. And so I'm given this choice of who I'm going to serve, who am I going to put first, him or me. And humility tells me to put his needs before my own. It's the kind of humility that leads to unity. John Piper has a, a helpful thing on this. He says that the test of humility is a test of entitlement. He says that humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. Because entitlement is insisting on what you deserve. Entitlement is insisting on your rights, on the things that you deserve, that you earn, that you have coming to you. Insisting on having those things and getting angry when you don't get them. But humility is letting go of your rights, letting go of what you deserve, and serving others instead. I know a lot of you are going to grab some tri-tip today. You're going to go home and eat that for lunch some of you are going to go out to lunch. And if you go out to lunch, I'm going to give you a test of humility. When your waiter isn't keeping your drink full, right? If you, you spend $3 for a Coke, that Coke should be to the top the whole time, right? But when that doesn't happen, when you don't get the service that you believe you deserve, what's your reaction? When you're not getting what you believe you are due, how do you respond? Do you respond with grace, with mercy, with care for others, or do you respond with indignation, with anger, frustration? 
Because if you are someone whose character is marked by those things, by anger when you don't get what you believe you deserve, you're not someone who is living humbly. You're not someone who is marked by humility. So he defines humility for us, and then starting in verse five, he gives us a demonstration, an example of this humility. An example of this humility, look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is a picture of humility. This is a picture of radical others-centeredness. This is a picture of putting others' rights before your own. Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son to the eternal Father, the creator and sustainer of all things, the eternal word of God, God himself, says that he was in the very form of God. That doesn't mean that he looked like God. It doesn't mean that he was shaped like God. It doesn't mean that he's in the image of God in the same way that we are. That word form, it's morphe. It means that he is intrinsically in the unchangeable part of who he is. He always has been, always was, always will be God. In his very essence, he is God. The eternal son of the eternal father, the creator of heaven and earth, demonstrates for us what humility looks like. And that he goes from this eternal blessed relationship, this eternal blessedness he has in heaven with the father and the spirit and he takes on flesh. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and took on human form, the form of a servant. But he's not done with that. He doesn't just go from equality with God to being a a human. He goes further. He becomes obedient to the point of death. Not just any death, but death on a cross. We see these incredible steps of Christ's humility played out. Who was in very nature God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped, when we hear it, we think of kind of reaching out, reaching out up to grasp something. But that's not what this is picturing. This grasp is picturing holding tightly onto something, clutching onto something jealously. And it tells us that Christ, though he was and is and will be God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held tightly. 
the rights, the privileges of his deity, he did not count as something to grasp onto, but he emptied himself. He opened his hands and he let those rights and those privileges of his as God himself, he let those go for our sake. The rights and the privileges of his deity, he forfeited for us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, weak flesh, like you and me. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even a horrible, gruesome, torturous, bloody, painful death. And painful not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual. Because there on that cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in Christ's humiliation, in his humility, he did not just go from eternity with the Father in loving relationship to being a man. He went from there to death a horrible, gruesome, bloody death, and he bore the sins of all on his back. He forfeited for a moment this eternal, loving relationship with the Father where he had never experienced anything other than the Father's love, and he went under the Father's wrath for our sake as payment for our sins. Christ's humility is about much more than the incarnation. It's about his active obedience. It's about his crucifixion. It's about his atonement. Christ humbled himself and humbled himself and humbled himself, forfeiting his rights for our sake. And that is the mind of humility that you and I are to have. That is the mind of humility that is ours in Christ. That is the kind of radical selflessness that we are to have. The mindset that is to drive our love for each other. The mindset that is to drive our service of each other. The mindset that is to show itself through our manifest unity humility of Christ. So, Paul has given us the what, this call to unity, that we be unified by the Spirit of God. He's given us the how. We do that by having the mind of Christ, by putting others before ourselves in radical ways, in self-sacrificial ways. And now we turn to the why. Why? Why is this unity so important? Why is this humility so significant to the Christian life? I believe the answer is this. It's important, it's significant, because it is a means of exaltation. It's a means of exaltation. Look at verse 9. 
following this incredible, powerful picture of Christ's humility, taking on flesh and dying on the cross for our sake. He says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that he is king, that he is the ruler and the sovereign over all creation. That exaltation came because of his humility. It is in light of that humility that God exalts him to that office. Christ's exaltation has its end, its goal, its result in God's glory. That every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, what? To the glory of God. Christ's humility has its result in God's glory. And the same is true for us. You see, in the same way that Christ was exalted because of humility, Christ tells us that we will be exalted for ours. We see this throughout, throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 18, Matthew 23, Luke 14, Luke 18, we see Jesus say, he who humbles himself will be exalted. But that exaltation is not the end. The end is God's glory. Just as Christ's humility led to God's glory, our humility leads to God's glory. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live out this reality of the gospel with awe and reverence, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. This is the part I want to focus on here. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, if we live lives of Christ-like humility, lives of humility that leads to unity, then we will be lights in a dark world. We will stand out as children of God in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. If Grace Church of the Valley is marked by an others-focused, self-sacrificial love that we have for each other, that is a light that will shine brightly in a world that knows nothing of selflessness. If your family is marked by the self-sacrificial love that you have for each other, you will shine as a light in a dark world. If your marriage is marked by the way that you continually put the needs of your spouse above your own, the way that you continually seek 
their interests and not your own, that will stand out in a world that knows nothing of that kind of selflessness. If we humble ourselves and live in light of the unity that already exists because of the gospel, we will shine as lights in a dark world. And that will bring glory to our God. I'm going to take you to one more passage today. John chapter 17. It's a section of what we call the high priestly prayer. As Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, the night when he's going to be betrayed, the night when his humiliation will reach its climax, just hours before he is going to be beaten and bloodied, nailed to the cross for you, for me, for his disciples, he prays this prayer. This prayer for his followers. This prayer for those who trust in him. And explicitly, not just for those who were there around the table with him, but for everyone who would come from those. For the church. Church in Rome, the church in, in Antioch, the church in Geneva, the church in Kingsburg. He prays for his church. I want you to listen to the words of his prayer. John 17, I'm going to start in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. What is the end? What is the purpose? What is the goal of this unity? Is that God be glorified. That the gospel be preached. That it be communicated clearly, not just with our words, but in our actions and our interactions. Christ's prayer here for his church is that we be so unified as he and the Father are unified that our undeniable love for each other, a love that is ours in Christ Jesus, that undeniable unity would cause others who have not seen the light, who have not heard the truth, to see the way that we live and to realize the truth of our message, the truth of the gospel that we proclaim with our words played out in the manifest unity of our lives. Because of Christ's humility, 
God exalted him and bestowed on him the name of Lord that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of who God is, because of how he has exalted Christ, every single knee will bow, every single tongue will confess. Every person living or dead will bow their knee and confess Jesus as Christ. The question is not if, the question is when. And the incredible result of us living in the humility of Christ and living out the unity of the Spirit is that the gospel of Jesus will be proclaimed in our midst. People will see it. They will see that bright light on the hill and they will come to know that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was sent by God, that he has shown them love through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and that they can have new life in him. The incredible result of our unity is that God will be glorified by our obedience, yes, but also by our witness. And that our witness would drive those who are lost around us to bow their knee today to confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, not in the future, not just on judgment day, but to do it today, that through our unity, through our humility, through our others' focus, self-sacrificial love of each other that we have in Christ, through that, many would come to know the truth of the gospel, to be saved from the wrath of God, to put their faith and their trust in the creator that they may enter into that incredible gospel-powered unity that we have in Jesus. Our unity is important because our unity on the basis of Christ-like humility proclaims the truth of the gospel that sinners might be saved, and that God might be glorified.